Yo, how's it going, everybody? This is Alexander Parker, the host of the Mid South Boogaloo Podcast. Espero que a todos les haya ido bien. I just hope that you guys will be doing well and hanging in there. And also now, now it's summertime. Summertime is here, and hopefully, you guys can get to enjoy time off from school and work. But if not, keep working hard because your hard work will pay off. And so this episode is a bit different. This marks the first episode of what I call MSB Rewind. And MSB Rewind is where I look at conversations that I've had in hindsight and share more thoughts. Thoughts that I wasn't able to share in a particular episode or even thoughts that I've had after a conversation with a guest. For the first episode of MSB Rewind, I want to talk more about what was discussed in episode three of my podcast, which was mostly focused on African-Americans and their role in Latin music in New York uh, and how we have mambo, Latin jazz, uh, boogaloo, and so forth. All music forms from New York City. And man, looking back, like that was a great conversation that I had with Ramel. Um, he shared a lot of knowledge. I was aware of some of the things that he brought up, but he really did help put things in perspective. So basically, there were three main parties involved. There were African-American jazz musicians, Afro-Cuban, black Cuban musicians, and then Puerto Rican musicians and singers. And it's really, really interesting when you put it all together, a very interesting phenomenon. So you have the Afro-Cuban artists coming to New York and talking with African-American jazz musicians and learning about jazz uh, adding on to their knowledge of, of, of classical music. And then when Cubans were not allowed to come to the U.S. anymore, you have Puerto Rican musicians and artists uh, becoming the face of a lot of the Latin music. And at many times with them being the powerhouses and the innovators of Latin music that would follow. The most recent examples including, of course, the well-renowned Mark Anthony, Bad Bunny, Osuna, Dale Yankee, Dan Omar, and so on. And then you have New York as the stage and the testing ground for all of this. Moreover, another layer to add to this, another aspect of this, is the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s, they were not unfamiliar with, with racism and discrimination. So in the midst of racism, discrimination, Jim Crow, you still have these people coming together to make music, coming together and operating with, with extremely high levels of creativity. People coming together and making music in spite of the hardships experienced by minorities, especially by the African-American and the Latinx community. The complexity of all this is nothing to sneeze at. I believe there should even be a course, if there isn't already, about all this. This could be like a a years-long history course, or even a major at universities. There's even a book on my radar now. It's called New York and the International Sound of Latin Music, 1940-1990, American-Made Music Series by Benjamin Lapidus. That goes more into detail about the subject matter. And I will definitely read that book soon and let you guys know um, what I think about the book. And as Ramel mentioned before, interactions with people like Mario Bausa, Jano Pauso and jazz legend Dizzy Gillespie were vital. Their interactions, their collaborations would set the stage for everything else. 
what will become mamba what will become afro-cuban slash latin jazz salsa boogaloo cha-cha everything and then you find out more about dizzy himself and he was very very interested in afro-cuban rhythms and if he has a few songs like night in tonosia or con alma which are clear which have clear afro-cuban influences also in episode three Romel and I spoke about Boogaloo, Latin Boogaloo, and how Latin Boogaloo or Shingling or Latin Soul, uh, whatever you want to refer to it, it had this unique ability to speak to people and to speak to certain people directly, to the New Yorkans, the Puerto Ricans of New York, to the African Americans that lived in New York also. And when you have something that speaks to people in this way, that connects minority groups together, you have something really revolutionary. Something that Boogaloo could have been. It could have been if Latin Boogaloo music continued to be produced. It could have began a really unique cultural revolution on a national level. But unfortunately, it didn't play out that way. As most of us know, the 1960s and 70s were full of activism. You have the Chicana movement. You have the Yellow Power movement. You have the Black Power movement. You have the Civil Rights movement. You have all these different movements going on. It was just a time where people from all different backgrounds, from across the board, were speaking out. And if you were, say, a leader, say, a musician, say, a activist, you were targeted. And the things that you say, uh, you were punished for, you were penalized for, or even targeted and assassinated. So in this climate where people are voicing out their opinions and their concerns and f- trying to uh, fight for change something like Latin Boogaloo would have definitely caused issues for people in power on top of that there was also a sort of new school versus old school thing going on at that time the late 1960s and so there were the 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 young the new school were the Boogaloo bands uh, they were of course representing the younger generation of musicians and then you have the old school, which were the which were the mambo uh, composers and musicians like Tito Puente and Eddie Paul Mary, uh, musicians that have already been established and were schooled in jazz and so forth. Uh, one being informal, the new school, and then the more formal being the mambo. With Latin Boogaloo or Latin Soul, people were for the most part dressed down and reportedly even worn jeans. While with the mambo setting, you have everybody wearing suit and ties. Uh, you have the band, the mambo bands, all wearing the same uniform. And apparently, there were companies paying DJs to stop playing Latin Boogaloo music. And eventually, it became blacklisted in clubs and restaurants. With all these different factors, I don't think I would believe that I wouldn't dismiss Latin Boogaloo as something that just declined naturally something that just naturally fell out of favor. There are too many factors. But fortunately, very fortunately, there have been some new groups such as Boogaloo Assassins and Spanglish Fly that make these Latin Boogaloo songs. And DJs have also been crucial in this sort of revival of Latin Boogaloo music. By the way, I also want to recommend some of the OG artists of Latin Boogaloo or Latin Soul. Uh, Joe Baton, Romel and I spoke about him in episode 3 We pretty much agreed that Joe Baton was the king of Latin Boogaloo He's African American and Filipino 
and this guy he sang doo-wop songs he played piano and he would even create one of the earliest rap songs ever called rapo clapo man this guy joe baton man he has a he has a very interesting story next i want to bring up johnny cologne johnny cologne is a mentor figure from Mark anthony they even have a similar kind of like yell in their songs uh the yow they, they both have <laughs> very similar interjections and ad-libs in their songs and cologne's probably most popular song is boogaloo blues which became a hit uh back in the mid 60s in 1968 he founded the east harlem music school and would even offer free lessons to the community and a very young mark anthony would stumble upon this school and johnny cologne and his wife would walk him home from the school jimmy delgado and tito nieves were also students cologne has currently found a new location for a school at the Lower Zada Inc. Center in New York. Next for the OGs, I want to mention Pete Rodriguez. He's known for his song, I Like It Like That, which Cardi B famously has done a remix of. In his songs, you discover that he had a very powerful voice, which was great for showcasing the different influences in Latin Boogaloo, but also his voice would have also been perfect for blues and soul music. And for the second time, I want to briefly mention the other OG artists, Ray Barreto, Mango Santa Maria, Jorge Guzman or George Guzman, Ralph Robles, Joe Cuba, Bobby Valentin, Joe Quijano, Caco and his orchestra, Joey Pastrana, Joe Torres, and the LeBron brothers. And yeah, I said LeBron, like LeBron James. The LeBron brothers, they're, they're really cool. Look them up. And a lot of these guys went on to make hits and salsa music. And you know what? Isabel's Gate? Let's talk about salsa for a moment. The salsa music, the continuation of jazz riffs played over Caribbean rhythmic patterns. It is an expression, a marketing term, and a concept that is part of this New York narrative. It came about in the 1970s, serving as a unifying force for Latinos in New York City. It was something that reflected and also spoke to the Latinos in New York City and was embraced, wholeheartedly embraced, by Latinos all across the U.S. And as I said before, the 1960s and 70s were full of activism, and there were a lot of conversations that were being had. And so, salsa music being a product of the 1970s, it may have inadvertently been something that sparked an, at- an attitude of, we should not try to assimilate to American culture, but we should show pride in who we are. If African Americans can show pride, why don't we? If black folks can take it, why do, why do we take it? There is an attitude of, hey, this is who we are. We're proud of our language, our culture, our food, everything that we are. This is our identity. We are Latinos. And the salsa music, the polyrhythmic, multi-layered musical sauce, musical recipe, spoke to that. I just find it really cool that the civil rights era and then the era after had played a factor in what we call salsa music now. The story of New York Latin music just has so many layers and it's so complicated, which is really interesting because I don't like things that are simple. <laughs> I like things that have multiple, multiple layers to them. I just thought about this. So also with salsa, I really like, I really love how a lot of the salsa artists have le- these like nods to black people, black people in Latin America and probably like, you know, uh, African descended people in general. 
um, you hear in the music, you hear a lot of words like mulata, morena, negro, la grita, which by the way, should not be viewed negatively. They should, you know, they are terms of endearment based on my understanding. There are even songs like No Le Pegue La Negra by Joe Arroyo and Vente Negra, which are songs that acknowledge and celebrate black women. On top of that, you have nods and name drops to African Orishas, which have roots in the Yoruba people in West Africa. You have a song by Ray Barreto called Hijo de Abutala, and a song that I mentioned earlier called Vente uh, Negra. That song, well, the singer in the song name drops uh, Oshun and Elegua and many, and many others. And then when you listen to the structure of the music, it's very African. Uh, there's even the most notable example is the clave in salsa music. Well, a lot of Cuban music, but uh, Cuban derivative music. But salsa keeps that tradition of keeping the clave, uh, the, the song clave, the bum, 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 bum. That same pattern you hear in traditional West African music and also modern, current African, West African music. You hear the same pattern. There's just like all these layers, all these aspects, all these things that are a part of salsa music, which is really amazing. Now, also in episode three, Ramel and I spoke about dance, mainly salsa and bachata, or maybe we could just put it all under the umbrella of Latin social dancing. Ramel drew this interesting parallel between dance and martial art. And a lot of people have made that connection um, in my life, just in conversation. Um, and I think it makes a lot of sense to make that connection because both involve devoted practice, technique, patterns, pattern recognition, combinations, control, focus, relaxation, attention, coordination, strength, refinement, intent, and also creativity. And the list can just go on and on. And there's also this learning of different styles. In, in salsa, for example, uh, there's New York style, LA style, uh, Puerto Rican style, Colombian style. In a similar way, there's styles, there's many styles in martial arts. And the final point that I make about both dance and martial art is that there's a point where it's not about learning the, the technique anymore. It's about you. It's about your expression. How you as an individual, how you as a human being, how are you expressing yourself? And Bruce Lee spoke a lot about this. I'm a big Bruce Lee fan, by the way. Um, so Bruce Lee, there's a there's a scene in one of his movies, I think is Into the Dragon, where there's a scene where he's teaching, teaching a kid how to do a certain move, how to do a kick. And he tells the kid, kick me. And so the kid kicks Bruce Lee and he's like, try again. And the kid kicks him and he kicks him with anger. And of course, Bruce Lee sees this and he says, with emotional content, not anger. And then the kid kicks. And I guess this is the best he's done so far. And he's like, yes, yes, that that is it. Emotional content. Moving with intention, your honest expression, 
these are things that are vitally important in both disciplines. Putting the focus back on Latin social dancing, uh, in the dance, there is always an invitation to express, to say something. And I don't mean say something verbally, but saying something without words using your body. And I've had a lot of these experiences, but Romero brought up that there's there's moments where he really wants to say something with his body. He's feeling the music and he doesn't. And also the partner, of course, um, does the same uh, either with him or without him. And there's there's always this this invitation to do what you feel. Now, in this environment where you're invited to express, express yourself openly, something very curious can happen. And this is what many refer to as flow state. Professor at Stanford University and neuroscientist Andrew Huberman refers to this as the state of wordlessness. It's a state in which the world doesn't matter anymore. You're just in the zone doing whatever, playing piano, you're dancing, you're shooting a basketball, you're just involved in activity in, a, in an activity so heavily that the world doesn't matter. And when people are in that state, creativity seems to pour out of them. And Dr. Huberman has stated that this is something that should be studied more thoroughly. And it may even be something that's central to the human experience. As someone that has experienced this firsthand while playing while playing percussion, playing drums, and also dancing, it's a very magical place to be in. If you're a basketball player, soccer player, musician, painter, you definitely know you know what it feels like to be in that state. You feel calm and confident and everything feels effortless. I could definitely agree with Andrew Huberman. By the way, uh, please check out his content. He has content all over YouTube and social media. Uh, his name is Andrew D. Huberman. But yeah, I can definitely agree with him. If you have something, if you're involved in activity or even multiple activities, or if you don't have one, please find one. Uh, if you're involved in something that makes you feel these things, you're, like your nervous system is on fire and... Um, you're calm and you feel confident these that's something that should definitely stay in your life these are things that we must have in our lives and for right now i have percussion and dancing but i would love to add woodworking and martial art and maybe even soccer to that list all right guys this is all i have these are my afterthoughts I also want to say I'm not a historian, I'm not a musicologist, but I do find the subject matter really interesting. And this is the first episode of MSB Rewind, and I hope you enjoyed it.